right, gang? Welcome back to your favorite Tuesday afternoon you've had all week. It is time for the True Wealth Radio Show, and I got to tell you, you all, there's a bunch of folks still without power. First of all, condolences. I hope that gets taken care of quickly. But I'm also going to tell you, we can all have just a smidge of jealousy, right? Now, I don't want it to turn green with envy, but just a hint of jealousy because Katie is gone this week. She's in Mexico. Oh. Yes. So, subbing in today, pinch hitting Mr. Derek Simmons. Always good to see you. Love having you on the program. You've, in fact, we've had you here several times recently. That's true. I was just about to think it should be the True Wealth Show with Derek Simmons. What do you think? Um, okay. Well, we'll see when you come back next. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not even opposed to it. Uh, so we've got lots to talk about today, and this one came up in. It literally was a dinner conversation. It's true. Uh, we're going to talk about something really kind of interesting. If you are unaware, there was a rather remarkable because it was the first of its kind legislation passed in Oregon. Now, I don't know if this is high five material or not. Okay. But we had the passage of a statewide rent control bill. And I have already gotten a lot of questions from people saying, so is this going to affect me and what does it mean? Uh, and I know, Derek, you, of course, uh, have been, uh, have are and have been a landlord. Sure. And I, I am as and well. And I've been a tenant. Yeah. But we, so we've got both of those things in common. And now we're looking at this scenario of, okay, so what does this mean for the state? And it, it really... I want to look at this from multiple angles, not just like, hey, is this good or bad? And that's a that's like, you know, throwing a shot from the cheap seats, right? You just say, is this good or bad? That's not going to help. I want to get a sense of what does this mean? So what's the impact on tenants? What's the impact on landlords? What's the impact on long term rent prices? What's the impact on supply and demand in an area and development costs and so forth. Like how how is this going to affect real estate investors? And I think long term is the is a way you need to look at it because in the short term this bill says a landlord can't increase rent more than 7% plus the cost, plus of, the living, cost of living which is like 10.5%. Right. It is rare that landlords attempt to increase rent by 10.5%. That's, so, that's been certainly been my experience. So as as written, that part's not going to cause that much difference to most people. But in everything, in everything, there are the outliers. There is going to be a landlord who says, I want him to leave. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to jack up the rent. Mm-hmm. And then it will actually force people to leave. And on the other end, you'll have tenants who, who simply won't pay rent until they get evict- evicted. And sometimes that takes 90, 120 150 days, you know, if you misalign on the eviction notice. Mm-hmm. So there are going to be people that abuse the system on both sides. And and this law is not going to change. Um, yeah, it doesn't stop abuse. Yeah, it doesn't. Right? And for most people, it's not going to make a difference because it doesn't happen that often. Right. And that's so my initial take on this one is that principally, I'm not crazy about it. Principally, well, you know, my my objection is really about the economic theory behind it. It doesn't make sense. 
Sure. It's the, it's the government monkeying with the market when mm-hmm. the market and keeping the market from finding its equilibrium. Right. You know, Adam Smith's invisible hand just hates this. Yeah. So so we're going to we're going to play this game just for a moment. So f- for all of you out there uh, listening, if you're not familiar with some of the very classic economic theory, Adam Smith was an economist and he had this theory called the invisible hand. And what it says is that when a market has something out of balance, an invisible hand goes to work trying to bring things back into balance, if you will. And the very basic premise is that it's always a function of supply and demand. Everything else around it is simply manipulating those two variables, right? So you're either affecting supply or demand, and it gets more and more complex the more you build from there. But the invisible hand is what actually moves the thing that changes the behavior and, and makes the makes it happen. Sure. Right? Let me so, give you an example. Let me give you an example. So if I set up a a booth where I'm selling cupcakes and I'm selling them for a nickel each and they're, they're good cupcakes. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to sell out immediately in this day and age at that price point. I'm I'm not going to have enough now, same cupcakes. And I want to sell them for $5 each. I'm going to have a table full, right? So the invisible hand is telling me that the price is somewhere between a nickel and $5, right? Now this would also be, the, what we would call the intersection point between. So when you when you draw a supply and demand graph, what you have is one slope that goes, if you're looking at, think about in your mind, I want you to kind of picture a square, okay? Or a rectangle. In the lower left-hand side, I want you to draw a line that goes from the lower left to the upper right, okay? And it doesn't matter which one, but typically I believe this is the supply line, okay? And then in the upper left-hand corner is I want you to draw a line in your mind that goes down to the lower right-hand corner. And you get kind of a box with an X in it, right? And these lines are not always straight in an actual economic graph and so forth. But the idea is that the point that those two lines cross is the point where the price of something for the number of buyers that exist for it matches. And so that's the price equilibrium is... the balance between the right amount of supply available and demand for that item. Let me let me make that my, my cupcake illustration. Yeah, back to the cupcake. Okay. Now, suppose that I am the only guy with a cupcake table and there are a bunch of people that are a captive audience. They're in the in this conference center for a conference, no other snack foods. I can really jack my price up. Well, so this also I will I'll make this one real easy. You're in an airport. Okay, right. You're behind security. There's not very many options, and you're hungry. Yes. Guess what? You're paying a premium. It's like buying a meal at Disneyland, right? Well, it that's just true. Costs more because you there's not the ability to get alternatives in there to compete to lower the price. And that's scarcity. So it's a it's a more scarce resource. If I'm in a room full of cu- cupcake tables, my price is going to be lower because there are many many other yeah. options. And and when we talk about the various things that influence either A, the supply, the number of cupcakes in existence, or the demand, how many people want cupcakes, right? Now, what can influence demand, right? It can be how hungry are they? It could be how 
good are the cupcakes? Right. Right. And the price point. Right. And it can be, and the price point is going to be a factor because it could be the best cupcake of all time, but if it's just too expensive, nobody's buying it. Right. And it could be a really terrible cupcake, and no matter what you price it at, nobody's going to buy it. So there has to be a minimum quality level before people will look at it, right? And then there is some variability based on quality. Some people will pay a little bit more of a premium for a premium item. But invariably, you're going to get to some kind of price consensus that's pretty close. And that's what the invisible hand is sorting out. Now, we're not talking about cupcakes today. We're talking about rental properties. Right. So what does this new legislation potentially do for the supply and demand of rental properties in our state? Well, in the short term, it doesn't do anything. We've got the exact same number of rental units we have right now, and the people that own them can increase their rent by 7 to 10%, but uh, it is going to decrease the number of people who build new rental properties. Ah, now, why do we figure that is? Well, if you if you have the opportunity to shape um, the rent according to the market, let the market influence what your rent's going to be, and you have that ability in, say, Idaho, and you do not have it in Oregon, you're going to spend your money building an asset in Idaho. Right, so what, what you're saying is our market, by virtue of added complexity is less attractive with this additional well not layer. just complexity complexity yes but, well, a, but an actual also pricing impediment an actual ceiling on the pricing yes well here's the question that i would so i'm let me play devil's advocate for a moment and we just got to understand that i'm not really the advocate on this one but i do want us to get fully through the issue okay if I have a tenant and uh, I see that, let's say I've got a, an apartment complex and I, you know, a unit comes empty and I say, all right, well, there's nobody in it. They, they, the tenant left of their own accord. So now I have no restriction on what I can increase my rent on, right? Because the cap is on an existing tenant as I understand it. That's correct? correct. And it's an existing tenant after 12 months. Right. So in this case, let's say that the tenant moved out of state. And so now I have an empty unit and I can put it back on the market. And the previous tenant, I'm just going to pick numbers that are easy to, for everybody to track. So let's say there's $1,000 a month that they were paying for this space. And I realized that that was way below what the current market is, but I was capped at my ability to raise on that tenant because of this legislation. But now I could turn around and say, you know, I'm going to put this on the market for $2,000 a month and see what happens. And if somebody says, I'll take it, then I've, I'm in good shape at that point, except that now every other unit that I have that's priced well below market is going to make it much more tempting for me to want to kick everybody out and try to bump the rent up on those. Right. And, and it also tempts the tenants to say, you know, I'm just going to move out and sublease my apartment. Even if it violates my lease, I'm just not going to tell the landlord I'm going to rent it out for, you know, 1800. And that's less than the landlord would charge these same people for a similar unit. It encourages people not to be honest about it. Right. Now, that, of course, I don't know what you do to fix lying with tenants. Right. I mean, I, I just don't. There's no amount of legislation that's going to fix bad behavior that, as best I can tell. Yeah, but uh, I don't think that it's necessary to encourage it. 
you know, as as we have it now, the market price is the market price. Mm-hmm. Or we had it until five days ago, the market right. price was the market right. price. Now it's not. Yeah. So it's going to be, it's really interesting. Uh, it's what's also interesting, and I want to cover this, but we got we to gotta do a, a break here, but is how, you know, the, the state's not the same market. I mean, we got different markets all over the state, and yet this, by and large, I think was really driven by experience in the greater Portland area, but the whole state's going to be impacted by this. Yeah, wait till I tell you about the part about this law that really ticks me off. Oh, this will be fun. We'll, we'll, we'll do that We'll cover later. that when we come back. I love it. That was a good cliffhanger. All right, so uh, stick around. We'll be right back where we're covering this new uh, rent control legislation and what this means for investors. That and more. Uh, this is Dave Littlejohn. And Derek Simmons. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Show. Uh, Dave Littlejohn here, and uh, pinch hitting today for Miss Katie Shook. I've got Derek Simmons, attorney at law. It's always more fun than working. I think this is very, this is client development. Some, somewhere sure. out there is a person listening right now saying, that Simmons guy, I need to contact him about this legal thing. Right? And that's the right thought to have, Dave. Exactly. That's and, true wealth right there. That's yeah, that that's true wealth is feeding your attorney. Uh so it's I will say, just as a side plug for attorneys, right? Uh when you don't know what you don't know, it's oftentimes cheaper to find somebody that does. It's it's way easier. <laughs> so I I'm just saying I uh I don't know that uh, it doesn't. There's lots. There's other quality attorneys in town. I just happen to know Derek the best, so that's how that works. Yes. If you've got a VCR, I guess it's not a VCR anymore. If you've got a DVR problem, then you find a 12 year old to deal with it because that's what they do. And if you have a legal problem, you should call an attorney. an attorney. And if you have some kind of, you know, obscure DIY problem, you. Never mind. You're out All of right. luck, yeah. Yeah, then you go to YouTube. So uh, here we are. We're talking today about, uh, what was, do you know the Senate bill number? I mean, what was the name of it? Yeah. We passed it. Uh, I should have looked Senate it up. Senate bill really. 608. Yeah, so Senate bill 608, which uh, recently was passed and signed by the governor. Uh, my understanding was this was passed on a 100% party line vote. It would not surprise me. And... Uh, in both the House and Senate before going to the governor. Uh, it would not surprise me either, given the supermajority status uh, that Democrats currently hold in the state. So uh, it, it, in the, for what it's worth, if you, if you happen to be on the other side of the political aisle and you're you know, gritting your teeth about this, then you can say, hey, it wasn't my idea. Okay, but here we are, right? So now we're going we're gonna to deal the hand that was dealt to us. Now, Derek, at the break, you talked about kind of a, an interesting thing that sticks in your craw about this, because uh, I I worry long term about how this has an impact on the supply side right. of rental housing, and I also have some economic concerns uh, surrounding the concept of gentrification in some of our communities. But there was something specifically that you mentioned to me, and you mentioned it during the break. But before we went to break, you said, you know, something that's just bugging you. Oh yeah. Yeah. So what's what's got your what's got you? You know, it's not actually the the rent increase cap. Ten percent is plenty of room. It's really plenty of room. I don't expect it to affect the market that much. 
Long term, it may cause people to put money elsewhere. The part that really chaps my hide is the part where um, you can't evict people without cause anymore. Okay. So it, it so used first, to be. Yeah. So first we're going to explain yeah. what that means to our listeners. Yeah. So without cause means, you know, I've got another plan for the place. So I'm going to give you notice, you know, in accordance with our lease, whatever it says, I'm going to give you adequate notice to go find someplace else because I want to do something else with it. It's my property. I want to do something else with it. The alternative is to evict for cause. And that's where I have to find something that you did wrong that does not comply with the lease mm. and kick you out. This sounds like the law of unintended consequences. It about really to is. go bananas. That is exactly what happens because when I'm consulted by landlords, I'm consulted by them fairly routinely, and they've got somebody that's a troubling tenant. It's a troubling tenant, mm-hmm. and they foresee long-term consequences. Maybe they've got multiple guests You know that, that the lease said you can only have so many, but gosh, you don't want to really have to go over and prove all that. So what you tell them is, what I historically have told them is, well, give them a no-cause eviction. There's nothing to fight about. It's just, it's the lease allows for you to do this. It's nothing, it's something that you don't have to fight about. And, and landlords routinely take that opportunity because the other option is to fight about stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, the court system, which works its very best to administer justice, is wildly overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. It has way more work than can be reasonably done. And this is why you, uh, if you want if you decide you want to sue somebody, it may be 18 months before you're in court because there's just so much stuff to there's do. There's only so much bandwidth for the courts. There is indeed. And we just increased their workload. Yeah. Fairly I, dramatically. I can totally see that. That, you know, you're, because now, well, I think you're right. First of all, you're going to find cause, right? I mean, that's, that's sort of the issue is that uh, I think everybody, if we're honest with ourselves, you, you know, you, you break the law by accident sometimes. If, if somebody was to watch your every single move, they can find something. Sure. And that's the, I think that's the problem now is that it just means that landlords are going to conjure up cause. And so then tenants in response will do defensive tenancy. They're going right. to videotape everything. They're going to keep, they're going to uh, be watching their landlords every move just mm-hmm. in case they have to defend themselves from something. It's not the human interaction that we want. No, I, I agree that it really does. And and the other is this, is, this is a sensitive subject for a lot of folks because uh, it te- people tend to make it very personal instead of uh, thinking about a bigger picture, right? So they'll think of a scenario where they say, well, I know this person that just got totally taken advantage of by a landlord. And there was this circumstance and they tried all these things and the landlord was totally non-responsive. And, uh, and so they were really victimized. And so this, this rule needs to be in place because of that. And uh, we've had this discussion before that in many cases, that is really way out on the bell curve in terms of the number of times something like that occurs. It is. The market would ordinarily adjust for that, and that person would get fewer applicants for that for right. that property like, eventually. Like why anyway. would you go there, right? Yes. Uh, and, and I know there's some other people right now they are saying, well, but for the four person that has no other option and this is where they're sort of stuck – uh, there's a whole separate set of conditions that one needs to consider 
for how that happens. Because what we often do culturally is we want to solve something in a really complex system, the really simple solution, and sort of patch it over. But when we do that, we pull one lever and then something else moves somewhere else. Right. Uh, and and this is the this is oftentimes the case. Uh, this is the I this is sort of my minimum wage argument, right? Is that you can't make flipping a hamburger a living wage job because it requires no skill whatsoever and it's so replaceable and there's such a long line of people willing to underbid the person ahead of them. Right. That you can't say, okay, well there's a hundred of you that want this job. It's a lottery now. And whoever gets it gets a living wage hamburger flipping job, and everybody else, too bad. So the long-term effect is if we increase minimum wage, that raises the price of hamburgers and raises right. the cost of employees everywhere else, which raises all the other prices. Right. We just created inflation. We did. And, and, and it's just a matter of how rapidly does it filter through the system. And it doesn't filter through at the same speed, right? So, I mean, some parts will be affected more rapidly than others. But any time that we artificially influence the cost of something, we're going to see this happen. We've seen it happen all over the place, right? It happens all over the place. And in the cost of energy, we see it in the cost of medical services. We see it uh, you know, in the cost of our housing, right? I mean, in all the different things that we put in place, different barriers to entry, regulatory requirements, and so forth. And some of them we do want. Yeah, I you mean, know, we I really can't. do want certain safety parameters and we want building codes that keep people from doing things and hiding them and then having them be dangerous and so forth. We 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 want those common standards. You know, and even on this one, I can't fault the intent. The intent is to protect someone uh, from having their rent jacked up uh, for no reason other than to get rid of them. Right. And and I I respect that intent. But when you try to create a law to deal with that one landlord who's going to do that, you you affect the entire economy without right. even realizing it. And the funny thing to me is that when I think about the perspective as a landlord, and I'm not sure how this didn't come up in the debate, or maybe it did, but it was simply ignored, is finding good tenants is sort of like mining for gold. It really is. And so if you have a good tenant, you, I mean, I know landlords that will actively say, you know, I didn't raise their rent because I don't want to risk losing the tenant. I have landlords whose leases say that the their rent's automatically going to go up every year, and they just refuse to raise it because they want to keep the tenant. Right. They're good people. They're taking care of the property. Exactly. And so when you have a good tenant, it's really valuable to a landlord when somebody takes care of the property as if it is their own. Uh, on the flip side, I can tell you from personal experience, I have had some tenants that were horrible, manipulative, abusive, awful people. I mean, like genuinely evil people. That And th I don't use that terminology lightly. I mean, they were vindictive. They tore stuff up. They wrecked the place, you, you know, and like ripped plumbing fixtures out of walls, just out of meanness. And I and couldn't even tell you why. You know, they just, and, and even better than that, they knew how to game the system. They said, well, we're going to stop paying. And then they, they knew how many days before an eviction notice. And then they required some other, you know, they, they played the whole game, stretched it out for like four months and trashed the place along the way. And then literally wrote a note 
with a bunch of charming phraseology about where we could, uh, you know, take our rent check when when they when we found the mess inside. And that's that's the outlier tenant. It was the outlier tenant. But when somebody says, "Oh, you you can't get rid of," it, I said the reality is the rent raising would never have been an issue. I had cause, lots and lots and lots of cause, and so. This legislation would not have prevented me from kicking them out. So, you know, you intentionally damaged the unit. That's cause. You're getting evicted, right? And, you know, I had the sheriff there to say, get your stuff out. It's been X number of days. Uh, so it, it's – I don't know that this changes a whole lot in the end. Well, in the end, I think it will. In the short term – in the short term, but, but yeah, let's talk about where does it, what what do I think, or what do you think is it going to do, say, five, seven, ten years down the road? Well, Portland, for example, where I think, you know, is uh, the place that is perhaps most concerned about this issue, is one that uh, was having a problem already, and it's going to exacerbate it. Right. So, I mean, they've got a huge... First of all, rents are super high. Second of all, they've got a booming population, booming population, and not that many new units. Right. And is this going to make people more likely to build new units in Portland or less likely to build new units in Portland? Well, it's hard to imagine it making it more likely. And so uh, we're going to unpack some more of this. Let's we got to grab another break, and then when we come back. I want to talk a little bit about what has driven the prices so high in Portland to begin with, and then how is this, as a response, going to be a challenge. All right? So that and more when we come back. This is David Littlejohn. And Derek Simmons. you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240, KQEN. Hey, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn and... Derek Simmons. And uh, we're talking today about Senate Bill, was it 602? It was 608. 608. Senate Bill 608 that was recently uh, passed and signed by the governor. This is the rent control bill. And the, the synopsis on this one is rents cannot be raised on a tenant that has been in the unit for more than a year. Right. So once they've been there for a year, you cannot raise rent by more than 7% plus the cost of living. And you know, that's one interesting uh, em- point of emphasis there. Another thing that landlords may find themselves doing is evicting people without cause in month 11, repeatedly. Yeah. Just to avoid having to deal with it. Yeah. Now we've just caused more turnover in the rental market. Yeah. So, and you know, there's so there's some rent increase limitations for tenants that are uh, existing tenants there is uh, some rules about what, you know you can no longer evict somebody without cause. So you know you can't just say, "Hey, you know I want to do something else with the property." You you know they you can't get somebody out if they're paying rent on time. You know, and I I spend a lot of time looking at exceptions because, um, as usual, they wanted a rule that said you can't raise rent, you can't evict. Well, that's what they wanted. A rule that says you can't raise rent too much. And they said, but, you know, there ought to be some cases where you can. Short-term tenant, that's Mm -hmm. less than 12 months. You're going to move a family member into the unit. I could see that becoming a path that many landlords use. I'm going to bring my mother in. They're going to live there. Maybe it's only six months, but they're going to live there. Yeah. 
and then I then my I can do whatever I want. My kids move to. in for college or whatever. Yes, right. People will have to be artificial about it in order to uh, get where they want to be. Right. Well, it could certainly happen. So, uh, as we're looking at this, we were talking about Portland, which is really what I think drove a lot of this was the rapid escalation in housing prices in Portland. Why did that happen, Dave? Well, you know, it happened, first of all, the state of Oregon as a population has really exploded. And I, I want to say it's somewhere in about the last 10, 12 years, we saw the population of Oregon grow from about 3 million to 4 million. So we've really grown a bunch, but almost all of that's been in Portland. Well, and Bend. I think, I think the Wall Street Journal compared Bend to the Bend housing market to a fat man trying to put on a pair of skinny pants. Yes, well, Bend is yet another extreme example, uh, and Bend Bend is going to fall into my Hamptons example. We could just use it as the Bend example too, though. But we'll, let's talk about Portland first and what happened, and and this all kind of leads to this idea of well, we better put in place this rent control measure. So, as the population increases. We have also simultaneously, we've had uh, this interest rates have been dropping, dropping, dropping. And so post-2008, the market has gone through now a 10-plus year recovery. And the housing market had to go through a significant recovery as well. So in that process, housing has now surpassed what the, the prior high points were uh, in the Portland marketplace. And the cost of construction has radically escalated as well. So all of the cost of building materials and labor and so forth to build within Portland has gone up a lot. Well, not just Portland. I'm hearing people even oh, in Roseburg saying, I really want to build this, but I'm going to wait a couple of years and see if prices go down. Yeah. Well, that was me, right? If you recall, right. uh, a couple of years ago, we were looking at building uh, because our family had just outgrown our, our former home. And when we came down to it, we could buy a lot more than we could build, like uh, like twice what we could build, because the cost had gone up to, you know, in excess of two hundred dollars a square foot to build. These are reasons to love your local contractor. Yes, <laughs> stay on yes. their good side. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, the contractors were not the cost point. I mean, the labor side of it was fairly standard, but it was the cost of materials themselves. Materials, was really, permits, really high. that sort of thing. It was all in all of the the other hurdles to get done with it, right? You know, the engineering and so forth that is required as part of it. All of that played into the cost. Now, go to the Portland marketplace and look at the urban growth boundaries and look at the population density as it already exists. And you tell me as a builder, what are you going to do? If your cost to build is $200 a square foot, and you want to build a 1,200-square-foot place, right? No dirt or anything else. I mean, you're going to be into this a bunch of money to, to start. Where's your margin going to be? How are you going to make any profit on it? If your base costs are at one level and you want to sell this as an entry-level home, very, very difficult, right? It is. So, and the other issue is that the available lots to build on are really limited in Portland. Uh, that's why they're converting warehouses into condos and things like that. So what they're doing is, you know, you'll tear down a house and build two houses on the old lot. 
right? And and you know they're they're rezoning, they're, right. they're doing higher and higher density uh, on existing spaces. I have clients involved in that exact process right now. Right, and what they'll do though is they're going to build a higher end home because people are desperate to get them, and so they'll pay for them. So why build a two hundred fifty thousand dollar home where your profits may be? $15,000 when you could build a $450,000 home with $70,000 of margin in it. Right. So they build those. And what it does is it keeps reducing the inventory of affordable housing even further. Because if you have a $450,000 home, you can't rent it for $1,200 a month. It won't pencil for the mortgage, right? Right. So, and it, and it doesn't compare to other investments. That's the thing. You can't say, oh, well, I'll just take my, you know, I have a retirement plan or I had a half a million dollars I inherited. I'll go buy a property in Portland, pay for it free and clear, and then I'll rent it. So I'll spend $450,000 and then I'll rent this place for $1,000 a month. That means your $450,000 is going to make you $12,000 a year. You can get that in a savings account. <laughs> At point zero, well, I, you could figure out the rate of return. No, I mean, you can go online and get an online savings account and get over 2% right now. So you would do better to put it in a bank and forget about it than have all the headaches of being a landlord. That's true. So at some point, the investment becomes non-viable compared to alternatives. And that's where the Portland marketplace has already gotten itself to, is it's too expensive to build affordable rental units. So the question then is, well, how do we get there? Well, rent control can protect some of the people that are already in rental circumstance, but what does it do for everybody else that can't find affordable housing? Nothing. And in fact, it may exacerbate the situation because what's the incentive for an investor to go build now? It's reduced. If to the extent that there was one, there's still a return, but it's going to make it at the higher end. Right. And now trying to leverage as the now mortgage rates have crept back down. They actually they they've been up uh and 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 through December and they they've actually kind of moved back a little bit, so they're still in the you know, low four percent range for a thirty year money and they'd it gotten over five percent. Well, if you think about what the cost to borrow is and then how much you have to be able to leverage to then make an investment pencil, it's still, it's not a good equation right now. And so the real estate market's very difficult, which is why you get people doing development instead of building rentals. So that's the, and I don't think we fixed it with this legislation. And that that's the thing. You know, there's a lot of concern expressed by people. Well, I, uh, not me, but people will say, I'm concerned about the fact that, yeah, seven plus three, that's, that's plenty of rent increase. But now it's easier to just tweak that seven into a five or a three or a two. Uh, that one is worrisome, but it's actually, it's not the long-term bigger issue because you're going to have a real debate about that when sure. it happens. But getting it in place in the long term is just a bad idea for the market. Yeah. Well, again, my, I think that we could have addressed this differently. Uh, in fact, what are some, let's, let's, we'll play a game, okay? 
We'll play a game after the break about what would Dave have done different if he were in charge? Yes, if Dave were king of the world. <laughs> how might we try to... Dave's favorite game. Yeah, how, how might we try to make uh, lower cost housing more uh, sensible and attractive? So that and more when we come back. This is David Littlejohn. And Derek Simmons. We got True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, welcome back to the True Wealth Show. David Littlejohn and... Derek Simmons. And you're here for the home stretch. We've covered all kinds of good stuff. Today, we are talking about Senate Bill 608. 608. And one of the interesting things about this, the legislature does this periodically. They have passed this with an emergency clause. So most laws, when they're passed, they become effective the next January 1st to give time for regulations to be written, for people to get used to the law. This one was effective the minute it was signed. So this law is in effect now. Is it just me or is the term emergency <laughs> used pretty loosely in Salem these days? Well, and it's just not Salem. It's it's perhaps throughout the country. I mean, that it's... Uh, are you, are we going to do immigration next week, Dave? Sure. <laughs> I, I just look at this and I think... What happened to the philosophy of the, you know, smaller government is is the preference. You know, we've just our 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 government actually acts like private industry in my view, and it's that idea that, you know, Apple every year wants to get bigger and have more market share, and it's hungrier and hungrier and wants to get larger and eat its competition. Well, that is but, a long term criticism of the government. But let's let's turn it around and say, okay, Dave, king of the world. Mm-hmm. What would you do? Yes. So let's say that I got to play govern king for for Oregon for a, a stint here. And what would I do that I think could help impact the price of affordable housing? Well, first, I would look at some of the zoning laws and how we are determining land use and density in specific areas and so forth. So uh, I think it would be appropriate to examine whether or not certain areas are eligible for rezoning and whether that process could be streamlined. So you're saying kill off the family farm? I'm not build saying a high rise wherever you kill, want to. No, I did not say that. Now, did I? I said, though, that I think there are certain areas where we could have higher density, especially in areas that are already relatively high density. Uh, you know, I'm not sure why we don't go up sometimes. When, well, I think we I, I think going up has certainly been the approach in um, in the bigger cities for a long time. And the reason why is they don't want to go out. Right. Well, there's reason for that, too. And and going up, I mean, look, the way Portland is trying to sort this whole thing out, it's all trying to go toward public transit and uh, alternatives. And I will say that uh, we're way, we're still far away, farther from it than folks realize. But, you know, by the time we get autonomous driving and some of those other things where every car can potentially be a taxi, uh, you know, that will change our public infrastructure. And then going up makes more sense. Because you don't need to have a vehicle necessarily, right? You know, there's readily available transport and you can get stuff pretty easily. Uh, so we're getting better at connecting things in urban areas. But we're, we're, so we still have some of it's an issue of how we define urban growth boundaries and zoning. But I think a bigger part of this altogether is we need to have a pretty thorough review of all the regulatory requirements that are associated with each link in the supply chain for 
the cost of building. So relaxed zoning. So relaxed or improved zoning. And then? And then I would like to see a look at all the different materials that are going into housing. And I would like to see what's driving the price on all that. And one of the things that I would suggest is, and I'm going to take this from a different experience. This came from, a lot of folks don't know this, but uh, there was a season in life where I was involved with a small aircraft manufacturing company. Now, to build an aircraft is exotic in the regulations. If you think it's hard to build a house, go try to build an airplane. Okay, uh, And when you get into building heavy aircraft that are designed to carry passengers, it's the, it is phone books worth of law. Okay, there was a rule set up that said, if you will simply meet these criteria, you can build an aircraft that fits within these parameters. And it was a simplified set of criteria. Well, I think that we could do something like that for certain types of housing as well. That could be perhaps more modular or perhaps uh, certain sizes or scales that would make it easier to footprint in a hurry. So I would love to see some things that were deemed sort of safety compliant. A template pre-approval. In a sense, yes. Something that could be streamlined for approval much more quickly. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that you know everybody start plunking manufactured homes down everywhere. That's actually not where I was going with this. But the idea that, okay, well, a three-bedroom, two-bath place under 1,500 square feet has the following parameters. And so we know if you've got this size pipe hooked into the system and you've, you're using things off the shelf that are approved and you're using uh, approved people to wire them, then uh, you're, we're going to make some assumptions that those are all going to follow code and be streamlined to get done quicker. And it also would uh, give us the – you I would prioritize – those homes to get inspections done and I, I i think i would want to i would like to see how the inspection process goes for well how how hard is it to get through the inspection so let's let's call that template permitting template permitting and also when you think about what drives the price of anything i mean there's a supply and demand component to it uh, i would look at what have we done to artificially restrict the supply uh you know if we have we're lumber county we know we're lumber county right i'm not here to say we need to just cut down every tree in the county that's not my point but when we have a forest fire and there's salvageable timber why we don't do that it's it's that sort of thing where we really should be examining on a broader basis some of the policies that are they prevent the market from reaching a more natural price point. Well, I think you're right, but you pivoted away from Portland for a minute. Well, I did at that moment. But yeah, for Portland, I'm still back to simply, I would I would like to see permitting needs to be easier if it was template permits. Right. Right. And the same thing for some forms of template uh, building use cases. Right. right. So that those could get done easily. Uh, and maybe even some things that were, if you use specific, eh, you know, this is always gets a little trickier since I'm shooting from the hip. Uh, but whether it's a, appliances or it's fixtures or whatever it is, that there are certain things that they're on a list that you know, all right, well, it's fine. I mean, really, that's sort of silly because if it's UL approved, I mean, it's got its electric certification. If it's got the, so I don't know why that would be the issue, but it's just a matter of it doesn't need to take 
37 layers of bureaucracy and the business prevention department to get something done. It should be more affordable by design. Okay, so we've got our template permitting. We've got our relaxed zoning. What else? Well, beyond that, I would look at potentially providing tax credits to incentivize developing at the lower end. Because if the profit is all in making more expensive housing and that's not what we need, if we're going to use the tax code as it exists, and I don't like the fact that the tax code picks winners and losers, but if that's the way it exists and we're going to work within it, then I would say why not look at creating some kind of incentive for housing that comes to market below a certain price point. If we're going to steer the market, let's steer it with money. That's what it's built for. Correct. And that's my biggest So, point. Dave, is this you putting your, your hat into the ring for 2020? Dave for president? Sure, but it was always on my number one campaign platform is going to be ending daylight savings time. Ah, yes, that's yeah. next week. So Maybe yes. it's m- Sunday. So I, I, my campaign slogan is uh, never fall back again, right? So we're going to... <laughs> always uh, spring forward. Yes, so America should never fall back again. David for president, 2020. Uh, I could go 2024. You know, I, I think this next one could be a little ugly. You're flexible. Uh, but yeah... To me, if we're going to put incentives in place, um, one, I think it's I would love to see fewer incentives for obscure stuff that's really carved out for um, corporate benefit and some more stuff that is put in place for the taxpayer's benefit. Uh, But if you're if you need more housing, if that's where your area is straining, then at least for a season, put in place the right incentives to try to encourage that behavior so people will develop. Because otherwise, what they did was they've just put in place a uh, something that's going to reduce supply over long term. Well, we need to do something to counterbalance that to encourage more supply of housing to get that back in sync. Yeah. Anyway, good questions. And I can't believe it, the hour has flown by. It's time. It's so we time. Wrap. Uh, look, folks, is, if, if you've got financial questions, I always want to encourage you, give us a call at Little John Financial. It's 541-375-0898. But also, for legal questions. Watkinson Laird Rubenstein, 541-673-5528. All right, you guys, thanks for joining us. Derek, thank you as always. Uh, and for the rest of you guys, have a wonderful afternoon. This has been True Wealth on News Radio 1240, KQEN.